1: Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Users of Google and Microsoft services consume a lot of electricity, working on their desktop computers, searching the web, and streaming videos. With an estimated 2 billion people now on the internet around the world, what are the tech titans doing to increase the efficiency of our digital lifestyles? How are they helping consumers and companies understand and reduce their power usage? Do Google and Microsoft agree on how the IT industry can reduce its emissions of greenhouse gases? Can they play nice? Today we welcome Un- two unlikely. Top- <laughs> unlikely. we'll see. Today we'll welcome two top energy executives from each company for a conversation, including questions from our live audience here at Climate One. Rob Bernard is chief environmental strategist at Microsoft, and Bill Weil is the green energy czar at Google. Please welcome them to Climate One. Uh, Bill, Rob, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, let's start with sort of the scope and the scale and the stakes here for energy efficiency. What's at stake for the IT industry and Google and being energy efficient? What's, wh- why are you doing it? What's at stake?
2: We run large server farms that supply, to provide the services that you use. Everyone else here uses, assuming you use Google, Gmail, Search, etc., um, they depend on electricity. They're connected to the same electricity grid as everyone else. So you know, these lights here are powered by electricity. Um, that electricity comes from power plants around California, maybe from hydro plants in the Pacific Northwest. Um, we've got data centers all around the world, close to users, um, because latency matters. If they're far away from users, it's much slower. Um, And so we use a lot of electricity. We spend money on that electricity. For us as a business, the the very simple thing is that we can save money by using less electricity. So by investing engineering effort, investing capital in making our systems more efficient, we save money in the end. Um, We also help the environment because we use less energy, and as a result, there are fewer emissions that come from that energy. Um, So there's a a narrow piece, which is our own operations. There's a larger piece, which is the the environment as a whole. But then in addition, I think all the kinds of services you mentioned, the the shift that we're in now where um, information technology is becoming really ubiquitous throughout our economy, certainly in the the developed world, um, that shift is enabling efficiencies throughout our economy that weren't possible before. By using computation, using information technology, we can make many, many parts of the economy much more efficient than they used to be. And so there are opportunities, not just within the industry itself, but much more broadly.
1: Rob Bernard, what's Microsoft doing to to drive down the energy usage and therefore the greenhouse gases, either in the company or in the IT sector?
0: So very similar to what Bill was talking about. Obviously, we think about it in the context of our data centers. But really, if you think about it almost like concentric circles, you've sort of got... um, our own operations, right? And then we've got our data centers, which we run. But then, you know, in addition to sort of those layers which we share, we also have the issue that a lot of about a billion customers are either running Windows on the desktop or Windows servers in these data centers. So a lot of what we're very interested in is taking what we're doing as a company and also as an industry and pushing that out, because a lot of the data centers are obviously outside of Microsoft and Google and some of the big players. So how do we make sure, as an industry, those people are operating effectively? And then I think the big area, and and Bill sort of talked a little bit about this, of the dematerialization of society, which is how do we shift the way we do things so that we're using technology to be more efficient with the resources we use and also substitute for them. So that's sort sort of the concentric circle starting with just how we do our own business to data centers, to the operating systems and applications, and then leveraging technology more broadly.
1: And as a percentage of total energy usage or greenhouse gas emissions, how big is the tech sector?
0: So, I don't, I don't know what number you guys use. I think the number that McKinsey put out, it's about 2% of worldwide energy use. I've seen numbers a little lower, a little higher, but that's about the right amount. Uh, worldwide electricity use. Worldwide, Yes, not, be, all power, not all energy. It's not all energy. Electricity
2: is 35, 40% of energy.
1: And so, do you have a goal for you'd like to drive that down to? You're both part of a climate savers initiative in mm-hmm. Silicon Valley. I mean, is that going to stay at 2% as the world grows, or do you want to see that go down? What's what's the path?
2: I would actually bet that as a percentage of global electricity use, that information communication technology will use a higher percentage over time. But in the process, they will make the entire economy more energy efficient. So, yes, that two percent will grow, but the other ninety-eight percent will shrink and shrink faster.
1: Because people in China and India are getting cell phones, more people are coming online, more people. We, we more pe-
2: right, I mean, the, the industry is growing, even in the, the developed world, which already has pretty substantial penetration of you know, PCs and servers and whatever. We're finding many more business functions that make sense to put online, and so there's more server infrastructure to support that. But then in the developing world, you've got billions of people who are coming out of poverty and want the same kind of lifestyle that we have and are, are moving in that direction, and they're acquiring cell phones and you know, laptops and tablets, and there'll be servers and, and so on. So absolutely, there's a lot of growth.
0: So if you think, I mean, maybe two examples to get your head around this really easily is, there's a guy, Jonathan Cooney, who's out in, in the Valley here, I think he's working <coughs> out at Stanford, and he did two different studies. One was looking at, well, what is the greenhouse gas implication of the shift from CDs and jewel cases and all the carbon that was embedded in that to a world of digital-streamed music? And the answer was, even in the worst case, it was at least a 40 to 50% reduction in the amount of energy. Now, granted, there are now big data center and server farms around the world serving up music, so our industry has taken on the burden of that carbon and that energy, but all of the dematerialization at the net level, at least a 50% reduction in the impact of the music industry. Uh, second one is looking at you know, what if you were to send a piece of paper mail from here to New York versus an email, a PDF or a piece of email? And he says the mass difference is a ratio of three hundred thousand to one. So it's three hundred thousand times more mass printing out a piece of paper and sending it through the post than it is actually just sending electrons. Mass
1: meaning mail. pollution? Mass? You mean or you mean just the so
0: physical, the density and, and the materials used, right? you know, moving the atoms as opposed to moving
1: mass, right? Moving right, electrons. paper, cutting down trees, the, right. transporting the paper, all that sort of thing. Do you see right. similar efficiencies?
2: Absolutely. I mean, Nicholas Negroponte at, at the Media Lab at MIT, I think, was one of the first ones to talk about, uh, you know, moving bits, not atoms. Right. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, b- uh, bits, I mean, bits you aren't actually really moving the electrons, but you're moving electric fields, and they're much, much lighter than, you know, stuff. Physical mass, that's right. Um, uh, those are great examples. Another one where I think it's even more dramatic Um, is if you look at air travel or travel in general. Um, So we make very extensive use of video conferencing. And video conferencing now is, you know, my previous job, we used video conferencing a lot, and it wasn't so great. Um, Now I think it's gotten to the point where it's a very viable alternative to travel. Um, it's still, in a lot of cases, better to actually be there in a room with people and walking down halls and running into people. There are advantages to that, for, but for a lot of business, you can, you can get things done um, through video conferencing, and that uses energy. I mean, there are data centers and routers and all sorts of stuff out there shipping those bits back and forth, but the difference in the cost, energy cost and environmental cost of doing that versus, say, getting on an airplane and flying across the country or wherever you're going is just orders of magnitude. Um, And that's, I think, that kind of thing we're seeing across the economy. Um, In addition, you know, the other kinds of examples, things like, you know, the airplanes that we do fly in are much more efficient than the ones that we were flying in 20 years ago. And the reason is because of computing technology that has enabled aircraft designers to design airframes that, that they couldn't have done years ago.
1: But does Microsoft or Google actually tell people, go in the conference room, don't get on a plane? Absolutely.
0: Yeah, so we've reduced our per capita travel by increasing the use of technology <coughs> by in, in the course of one year by 30% per capita. Right? And it required a big investment of a bunch of servers to stream the stuff and do compression. And right. We use our own technologies, but there's lots of alternatives
1: out there. But is that also an, another thing where it's net money savings as well as smart energy policy? Absolutely. You're saving money. Uh, mm-hmm. abso- um, absolutely. Is less the expensive. airlines aren't happy about it, I imagine.
2: Right. Uh, people are traveling less, but um, th- there's no question it saves money, it saves
1: energy. Let's talk about data centers. We, we titled this, you know, Cloud Power. Uh, you know, data centers, they're huge, they're massive, they suck lots of energy. What's being done to, to make them more efficient? And as applications go from the desktop to the uh, to data centers to the cloud, what's going to happen to the energy profile there? Bill? Well, so we started
2: building our own servers a decade or more ago, um, Uh, very early in the history of the company. We started building our own data centers seven or eight years ago. And one of the big reasons was, in fact, to save money on both capital costs but also um, on uh, the uh, operating costs, the energy costs particularly, of of running them. So we, over the last uh, decade or so, have reduced the energy required to run our servers, to provide each unit of computation, if you will, by about a factor of two compared to what the industry on average does. And we've got now, I think, about 10 large data centers around the world that have been running now for years um, that have much, much less overhead than your typical facility. And we've seen that beginning to happen across the industry. Um, Microsoft and we co-founded an organization called the Climate Savers Computing Initiative a few years ago. It's really focused on servers and desktops and laptops on the client devices uh, or, or not on the data center itself, but on the, the actual computing devices. Um, we're also members, I think you guys may be on the board, of the Green Grid, which has been very focused on the data center itself, um, really trying to identify what are the best practices for building efficient servers, efficient PCs, efficient data centers, and then push that information out across the industry and try to drive some change. So we, I, I think there's still huge opportunity out there, but we've eliminated 80 85% of the overhead in a typical data center. And as you said, they're big, massive, energy-intensive facilities. Um, and so
1: there's a lot to be gained by doing that. Rob and Bernard, what's Microsoft doing on that front?
0: Yeah, we're, we're taking a similar but slightly different approach, so we don't actually build our own machines. Part of, back to sort of that, um, sort of wearing two hats, which is not only we we in the data centers, but we also want to do things that hopefully will help our customers who are running Windows servers. So we've been going and pushing the boundaries with, the OEM community to provide different types of machine. We've stripped away the plastics.
1: Those are computer or hardware makers. Yes, sorry.
0: Companies Dell, HP, <coughs> a large, large list of companies. And so we're helping design the specifications that they're building to us because we're already ordering tens and hundreds of thousands of servers. And then what that does is it trickles out to the market so that all of our customers, and even customers who aren't running necessarily Windows, can take advantage of the design principles that we're pushing forward. So that's sort of at the server level and the operating system level. We're also looking at how do you better manage the energy through the software in those data centers. So, for example, I have a desktop application where I can actually look at real-time energy use um, and all sorts of stuff, heat, humidity, energy use by physical property, virtual property. So then now that we've built this software, how does the industry take advantage of software like that to manage their own environment? So we're looking at it not only from the operator perspective but also from the operating system perspective. And then the other thing that you know, we do, um, as, as does Bill and Google, is rethink what the heck a data center is, right? So we've actually, you know, our design principle, we've more than doubled our efficiency over the last few years as well, is what if you actually got rid of the building? Most people probably think of a data center as a big 500,000 square foot concrete building. Well, why can't these things just run outside? Right? So part of what we're doing now in our generation four data centers is actually getting rid of the concept of an entire building. So, what a data center will be is very da- different than what a data center was, and the design principles should really radically alter the amount of energy required to do a transaction.
1: Rainproof servers out there in their code. I'm trying to get my head around that itself. Yeah, okay. You've you got to have
2: some kind of enclosure. Yeah, but it's not a big concrete building. <laughs> but it's, right. It, it, it could be, I mean, you yeah. definitely want to minimize. I mean, I think this is true for data centers. It's true for office buildings as well. You want to minimize the environmental footprint of the buildings in terms of what it takes That's to right. build the shell, what it takes to build all of the, the systems
1: inside it, and then the cost of running it. And cooling is a huge part of these things, right?
2: Well, every, Less and e-
1: less so, but yes.
2: It, you have to cool them, right? So every, you know, you take a typical commodity server at, at you know, 200, 300 watts, say, um, every watt that goes into that, that server, every kilowatt hour that goes into it, comes out as heat. I mean, from a physics point of view, they're basically toasters. Okay? <laughs> so, and there are a lot of them. So you've got you know, several megawatts of, of, of power going into a big facility. A toaster is about a kilowatt, so several thousand toasters sitting there on all the time,, you know, making toast really smoky. Um, uh, you know, that's, that's what a data center is. Well, all of that heat is in some it's in Container. a building, it's in a shipping container-like structure. It's in some kind of structure. If you let it stay in there, you don't get it out of there, the server's overheat they stop working. So you have to get that heat out of there. That's where, in fact, in most traditional data centers, most of the overhead is. It's in running those cooling systems. They typically run mechanical compressor-based chillers, the same kind of things you'd have in a home air conditioner or in many office buildings. Um, Those are very energy-intensive. They do a good job of moving heat from inside the building to outside, but they're energy-intensive. There are other ways of doing things, which which we've been doing, which you guys have started doing, which... Um, use much less energy. You still have to do the cooling, but you can do it much more cheaply.
0: And the other, de- I'm sorry, the, just to interject back to the issue because I think it's important for the other operators of data centers is historically data centers have had to run. I mean, it used to be like 68 to 72 degrees when people started first doing data centers, and it keeps expanding. But the design principle is why not be able to run a server at 122 degrees? Because then you can run it anywhere, and you don't have to vent as much heat. So if you can keep the heat, light, and people aren't sitting in the data centers working, so doesn't have to be comfortable. You shouldn't have to walk into a data center and feel comfortable. You should actually feel uncomfortable because you should be able to run these things super, super hot. And so I think pushing the industry in that direction, and part of the reason we sit on these organizations is how far can you push the envelope how quickly? Because the less you have to cool, you know, that's a dramatic, for a lot of other operators, that's a dramatic part of the energy.
1: We're discussing energy efficiency at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, and our guests are Rob Bernard, Chief Environmental Strategist at Microsoft, and Bill Weil, the Green Energy Czar at Google. Uh, Let's turn to the consumer side. You both have efforts to uh, give consumers information about their energy usage in the home. I believe it's Microsoft Home and Google Power Meter. Um, They haven't really met expectations. Tell us about how well they've done and what you've learned, Bill, uh, with with Power Meter. How well is that done, and and, uh, what, what have people learned from it?
2: So certainly we, we had aspirations to have many, many millions of users. We're not there yet. Um, I think we'll get there eventually. I think it's very early days for this kind of system. We're doing pilots with about a dozen utilities at the moment. Um, uh, those utilities, basically, they partner with us. They're um, the, customers that have smart meters. If the, the customer then opts in, elects to use power meter, the utility sends us the um, electricity consumption data that comes from the meter. Um, there are also a number of devices you can buy at Home Depot and other places where those devices play the role of a smart meter. They send the, the electricity data to us through your home broadband router instead of going through the utility. So if you don't have a smart meter or your utility hasn't partnered with us, you can buy one of these devices and send the data to us.
1: Does anyone really uh, buy those things out?
2: Some do. You know, I mean, there have been tens of thousands of sales of those, certainly, if not more. And, and there are a bunch in Europe as well. Um, so, but not millions. Um, not yet. Um, and I think for there to be millions, the price is going to have to come down. Um, but what we found with the people, you know, the, the goal has been to take things from where it is for most people today, which is you get in a, a bill from your utility maybe once a month, once every couple months. It says you use so many kilowatt hours, most people don't know what that means, um, uh, you need to send us so much money. Most people know what that means. Um, so, so you interact with your utility you know, because they send you a bill, and occasionally the power goes out, and that's pretty much your only interaction. Um, you don't know what's using energy in your home. You don't know when it's using it. You don't know how much it's using. And our goal here is to really open up that information so it's useful to people. And I think we've learned a lot in terms of what is useful to people, what isn't, the raw data itself, just that is not particularly useful to to many people, except data geeks like probably Rob and me and and, the people who work at Microsoft and Google. Um, But there are things you can deduce from that data and and tell people about that is very useful in suggesting to them where they might be able to save energy and money and reduce emissions. And so I think we're making progress there. I think it is very early days, partly in terms of actually opening up access to the data.
1: Rob, and Microsoft Home, similarly, hasn't really taken off in the way I think you expected, the company expected. Why not?
0: So I think there's a couple things. Um, If you look, go outside Home and and Power Meter for a second, which is the more user intervention that's required, the slower the adoption curve, right? So, you know, look at the digital TV versus VCRs and program models. Multiples of people now use and watch on-demand TV versus you could have done it with your VCR, but it was really cumbersome and difficult and required a lot of user intervention. So I think automating processes is part of the key learning where it's got to get more automatic. The other thing that I think we're learning is there's also you know where is massive amounts of energy aggregated into smaller numbers of people, and that tends to be in commercial buildings, um, not just in the, in fact not residential buildings. And so a lot of what we're now doing is expanding our thinking and our partnerships in areas where we can go after the big commercial buildings uh, to go take technology and apply it at that where we think you know upwards of 20 percent of energy can be reduced, you know not by necessarily adding new ceilings or changing windows out, but by using technology. And then the third area is sort of trying to anticipate this electric vehicle and connected vehicle wave where, you know, the fear is that a bunch of people are going to buy electric cars, hopefully. They'll come home at night, it'll be a hot day, they'll plug in their car, and guess what? The grid will fall over because you've now added another stressor on the grid. Versus if you have intelligence, how do you actually optimize both for power availability and for pricing? So one of the things we're doing with our home product now is we've sort of expanded it and done a deal with Ford so that as Ford releases its electric vehicle, there'll be software behind it that we're working on with them to deliver to the market so that people actually start to think, well, this new thing in my home, which is kind of outside my home historically, is now part of the energy system of my home. Uh, We'll see, you know, we're hopeful that that'll start to provide the impetus to move it forward. And the last piece is, you know, unlike other places, potentially like in Europe, where you actually have to report these things when you want to do home sales or financing, there's not necessarily a financial motivation for most homeowners or a requirement to go through this process of a home energy audit. So I think if that were to be in place as well, you know, whether people choose our technologies or Google's, or there are lots of startups in the valley
1: working on this stuff, you know, that'll spur the whole market to grow rapidly. And one of them, for whoever that is, is access to this information, uh, consumer information, which right now the utilities. Uh, have possession of. We've had members from the Public Utilities Commission here who said California law very clearly says consumers own that information, but a lot of people find it's difficult to get it from utilities. We're trying to, they're monopolies, they're, they're trying to hold on to something sure. that might be valuable. So, what kind of access are you getting, Bill Weil, from utilities to consumer data? Well, as I said, we've partnered with about a dozen to date, uh, mostly in the US,
2: some in Europe and Canada. Does that mean
1: they're giving you every, all the data you want? Yeah,
2: absolutely. Um, but there are a lot of utilities that are kind of holding back and are a little bit weary of it. I think you know, they may see some potential business opportunity or way of monetizing that data sure. someday in the future, and they don't want to give that up. Um, uh, they're worried about losing control of the data. Um, but I think over time, it will open up. It has to. Um, that data, if you, you live in a house, that data is about your life, and it's something you should have control of, you should have access to. Um, and accessing it only through your utilities website you know, isn't adequate. I mean, I, yeah. I, I could ask, but I won't bother how many people in here have been to their utilities website, and that might be, get a few hands. If I asked how many have been more than once, I'd be lucky to get one hand from a room this size. So, And you don't want to go to some special place to, to learn about this stuff. You want it to be integrated with the way you manage your life online. And I think, as Rob said, in the end, the more interventions required, the less people will use it. This stuff has to be automated. It has to be set and forget. It has to alert you when there's a problem, um, but not be something you have to watch all the time.
1: Uh, One member from the utility industry here, we were talking about this, why the utilities are sort of holding on to this data, which they may uh, think is a value, uh, said, well, I'd like to see Google give me my my search data. Google has a bunch of data about people. uh, That's not accessible to consumers. Could it be? Should it be?
2: We actually provide... An enormous amount of data to people um, that, in in terms of any data they store with us, um, we make it easy for people to get it out. In terms of the search logs, um, you could have your browser uh, keep the search logs easily. Um, I would be very surprised to see anybody actually want to get that data. Um, We make it possible for people to find out what information we do have about them, and they can delete that data. Uh So, one of the things we've actually Paid a lot of attention to the last few years is trying to make sure that people aren't locked in because of the, the data being stuck in our systems, and once they put it there, they can't get it out, and make sure that people understand and, and can see what kind of data we collect about them so that if they're worried about privacy, they can understand that. So, uh, you know, I think that, that, you know, it's a reasonable question. Um, the situation is a little different, and in fact, I think we've done much more from the point of view of making data accessible to people than than the utilities, of
1: utilities have. have. <laughs> uh, Bill Weil is the green energy czar at Google. We're discussing energy efficiency at Climate One of the Commonwealth Club. Uh, Rob Bernard, fair question. Also for Microsoft, what do you, if you're asking utilities to free up information, what are you doing to, to make it two-way transparency?
0: It's, uh, you know, we start to, now we're starting to get into, I think, one of the most interesting, evolving areas of all of our businesses in IT is where are the privacy boundaries? where do they stop, where do they start, who owns the data, who doesn't. I mean, there's a proposed bill, I don't know if it's been passed, the ENO Act in Congress, which says consumers should have rights to certain types of information within a certain amount of time. Uh, there's certainly been a lot of controversy around issues of privacy and, you know, like Facebook, for example, and other places. Where does this line stop and where does it start and who owns which data? Right? And so the, the opportunity, as well as the challenges. How do you give people more control over what they want to open and what they don't want to open? I mean, we haven't talked about it yet, but the other thing to think about is calendaring information. Right? The thing I always talk about, why is it that my phone, it's not really a phone anymore, but my handheld computer uh, knows that I'm sitting on this stage in this room, but yet probably my office and home don't, right? How do we wire that information up? Who owns that information? We certainly could argue, well, I would think I would own it, but there are a lot of service providers between here and my home in, you know, Bainbridge Island that have to use that information if we're going to do the intelligent thing. So it's not just about the technology. It's also about what does the information flow look like in the future. And as these things evolve, I mean, these are all new areas for utility companies, for regulators, for IT companies, for startups, and this issue. And then when you cross international boundaries, it adds a whole other level of challenge.
1: Let's talk about capital allocation. I think you have different approaches to the way you invest capital, or don't, in, in energy. I think Google's made some very direct investments in specific energy technologies. And Some on Wall Street have questioned whether that Google is Google going into the energy business. And I don't think Microsoft has a different approach. So, let, uh, my, uh, Rob, let's get you first in terms of, do you, does Microsoft put capital into energy to create new technologies? or what's your...
0: So, directly... Versus indirect, let's sort of divide it. Directly, all yes. yeah. So, and the answer on the direct side is we're not investing in creating new sources of energy, although we are investing in purchasing cleaner energy, right, which is a, sort of more of an indirect. Yeah. And then the other way to look at it is how do we actually think about changing the level of the ecosystem and leveraging investments? So we're, we're choosing to put our investments into software and software partnerships, which we think will help accelerate changes in the entire industry at a fundamental level
1: as opposed to at a point solution level. And Bill Weil, Google, you've actually put invested millions of dollars in high-altitude wind. Some Tens ge- of millions. At this point, right, about
2: yeah. $80 million dollars, um, and, and more to come. So I think one of the, you know, we talked earlier about energy efficiency and the question of how much energy do all these IT systems use, uh, how much energy does the economy as a whole use, what can be done to make things more efficient. Um, if you're worried about the climate problem, if you're worried about greenhouse gases, Being more efficient is one way to reduce the magnitude of that problem. But we're not going to solve the climate problem simply by being more efficient, by simply changing light bulbs and building more efficient computers and more efficient cars and so on. We still use energy. Population is growing. More people are are becoming more prosperous. Um, All of that requires energy. Um, What we need to do is move to cleaner sources of energy. And one of the basic problems with from an electricity point of view, with the the cleaner sources of of electricity, namely solar, wind, geothermal, um, nuclear, for that matter, um, is that they're all significantly more expensive, in some cases a lot more expensive, than the cheapest emitting forms of energy, and and that typically in most places is coal. Mm -hmm. Um, So we've put a lot of effort into really trying to drive more rapid both technology innovation to drive down the cost of clean energy, as well as deployment to try to get more deployed sooner. So we've invested in companies. We're doing internal R&D on the technology side. Um, And then, in addition, we both invested in some large wind farms in North Dakota. Um, So we're an equity investor in Mm -hmm. those those Mm -hmm. projects. Um, And then we've signed long-term 20-year contracts, commitments to purchase wind power um, so far from one uh, wind farm in Iowa, Um, that's a way of purchasing renewable energy different from the way most people have done it in the past. What it it does for us is it gives us price certainty for the next 20 years. So you you could argue it's a kind of hedge against rising energy prices from other forms of energy. For the developer, it gives them financial certainty. They can take that 20-year contract to the bank and get debt financing, get a loan that allows them to free up capital to build another project. So it's helping get more wind power on the grid. And, and we think that's a really important thing uh, and something that I think, you know, now that we've done that, and I won't say it was easy, it actually was, was remarkably complicated, I'm hopeful that it'll be easier the next time and that more companies, when they look to buy renewable energy, will look to that kind of way of doing things in
1: the future. So it's both for supply and the cost of running your business as well as potentially the upside of the equity investments and right. capturing the, the technology. Uh, of those. Um, Rob Bernard, uh, Microsoft was involved in something, the Carbon Disclosure Project. That's one of the examples, I believe, of sort of partnership that you did. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yet that hasn't worked. There's been some learning lessons there in terms of the way that was constructed and and what it says about uh, the technology that's used for some of these carbon uh, trading and, and measuring schemes. Tell us about that one.
0: Sure. So if you go back even before Carbon Disclosure Project, about four or five years ago, we entered into an agreement with the Clinton Climate Initiative to help cities try to figure out how many people heard a city five, six years ago say, we're going to be the greenest city in the world? All right. It's a lot of greenest cities in the world. And then you say, well, how much carbon do you emit? And they say, well, we're not really sure, but know. we're going to be the greenest and we're going to make the most improvement. So uh, we started down this path of saying, well, how can we actually create a scalable, robust service and platform in the cloud that allows cities to track and manage your greenhouse gas emissions. In parallel, the carbon disclosure project was starting to grow fairly rapidly. And about three years ago, we sat down with them and they had this vision for, look, we want all the world's carbon reported through one entity. You guys already have this city's thing. Maybe we can combine these things. And we need a scalable, robust architecture and infrastructure to go do that. Now, their domain expertise is carbon and carbon reporting. Ours is software. So what we did is we got together and said, look, we can build you this system and make it a flexible architecture, cloud-based security, privacy, some of the stuff we've talked about here, and we can also add in cities. And then the other thing is now Carbon Disclosure Project is able to go into water and do water reporting because we looked at this thing and said, look, today's urgent issue and problem is carbon, no doubt, but it's also pretty obvious that it's going to be things like water, resource materials. And so if we take a long view on this and design a system that actually allows us to think about multi-dimensional problems then we're going to design this thing in a very different way. And so we spent the last two years designing, building, and now having delivered two versions of this cloud-based service which allows companies around the world and the the carbon disclosures uh, credit they've done an amazing job of getting people to report. I think there's something like seven trillion dollars worth of assets uh, the, that, represent, that are represented in their reporting entities. And I think they're over 70% of the Fortune 1000 now. So this, I mean, kudos to them. We were fortunate that we were able to do something with them. And so when we look at these partnerships, and Carbon Disclosure is, is one of them, we say, look, where does somebody have a very distinct domain expertise where their success is potentially being hampered because they're not technologists? And where can we take massive amount of computation experience and technology and apply it in a way that says, look, one plus one actually really accelerates a whole new market paradigm? So in some cases, like the Carbon Disclosure Project, you know, we're hopeful it looks so far really successful.
1: One that hasn't been so successful to have problems is in Europe. And there they didn't architect their trading scheme That's the right. same way. There isn't central clearing in Europe. There's been some carbon credits that have gone, gone missing and disappeared. Uh, and so I want to get to the international stage. We've been talking very much about the United States. Uh, and some people would say what we do here doesn't matter because China and India are going to grow so much and consume so much energy uh, that it will dwarf what any savings we achieve here in the u s so what are you doing in China and India to sort of to get a global view at driving efficiency bill
2: all of the stuff we 're doing on efficiency, I think is applicable in China and India around the world, and we 're certainly working we have offices in china and we 're working to, to try to drive these kinds of efficiency um, uh, across the world. Um, I think the same is true with the sources of energy whether it 's it 's to make electricity, to drive cars, and, and, and so on, that the issue is global. It's not just the U.S. And you're absolutely right. If the U.S. made enormous progress, um, but China and India don't, and they continue on the path that they're on, emissions will continue to grow worldwide. And you, know, you, you can debate what the actual consequences will be, but the odds are they'll be pretty bad. Um, so it's got to be dealt with globally. The technology um, spans borders. So the technology work that we're doing, if we can innovate on the technology to drive down the cost of renewables, that's relevant in China, it's relevant in India, it's relevant here. And, and we're certainly working with companies and others who, who are doing things in China that will help take that technology.
1: Bill so, Wiles, is the Green Energy Czar at Google. We're discussing energy efficiency at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we also have Rob Bernard, Chief Environmental Strategist at Microsoft. Rob... You talked about buildings. A lot of the new buildings in the world are happening in China and India. Are they going to be more efficient buildings? Are they going to be smarter buildings?
0: Well, we certainly—I mean, I certainly hope so. So, I mean, to to sort of combine the two issues about buildings and power sources, just to try to give people a little bit of scale. So, the entire country of France is about 135 gigawatts of power. Every single year, China is adding between 100 and 120 gigawatts of power. So, there's basically a new France being built from a power infrastructure every single year in China. In India, the number last year was about 40 gigawatts, 20 by publicly owned utilities and 20 by independent power providers. And so the approach that we're taking and looking at is, wait a second, of all of these things, and now they're being consumed by this massive explosion in in buildings and manufacturing, how do you actually get intelligence all the way through the network so that as hopefully they use renewable, but reality is they're also using coal, that we can throttle things based on information much more quickly? So think about the following problem, which is if you have a bunch of windmills and the wind goes and then the wind starts to die, you know, we're working with power providers and looking at the software intelligence so that they can throttle much more quickly because if you drop literally 20 megawatts of power in the course of 10 or 15 minutes when the wind dies down, you've got a big problem if you aren't already running your inefficient coal plant up here because now what happens is you get brownouts. This is what happened actually recently in Houston in the United States. And so what we're thinking about is, wait a second, you should be able to use predictive intelligence embedded all the way literally at the generation of a turbine spinning and the fuel source all the way to the intelligence of what can you do on the demand side to tamper demand up and down, right? And some of that demand is data centers, but a lot of it's buildings. So how do you actually start to balance this system so that it's a whole system as opposed to a turbine here, a power plant generation here, a conglomeration of them there, and then a bunch of people over here using the energy? And today they're largely disconnected. So we're now trying to think about, okay, so what are the right ways to structure ecosystems with partners across that entire value chain so that they can actually start to talk to each other about energy in ways that we frankly do in the you know, IP and in the IT industry all the time already, but that industry historically doesn't do that. And so we've got to figure out collectively as a society how to change that dynamic because today it's all disconnected pieces of information and there's massive inefficiency at every single stage. Amory Lovin says that something like 90% of power is wasted. He's probably right, right? Because it's just we're not being smart about it. It's been so cheap and abundant that we just overproduce all the time.
1: Rob Bernard is the chief environmental strategist at Microsoft. Uh, we're going to bring the microphone out here and invite you to uh, come for audience questions. If you get on this side, if you could please go through that door. And we'll uh, line up with uh, Devin right there. Line, got that, <laughs> like that. Um, first, uh, we'll go, before we go to audience questions... Um Is this a c- competitive advantage for you? I mean some people say pick a company that you both love like apple um, the, the uh, you know um, some people say that that apple doesn't have an if, uh, incentive to drive efficiency in its supply chain because the factories in China that make their products and their competitors' products will just spread those savings to their competitors, right? Foxconn, if they learn to do something more efficiently, they will use it to uh, Apple. So where where does Google and Microsoft, I mean, some of this proprietary and competitive to you, or are you really going to be open in sharing this, what you learn on efficiency?
2: We we used to be extremely proprietary and kept that stuff very close to the vest. Um, The last three to four years, we've actually become much more open about the, the techniques, the best practices, the designs that we use to achieve this level of efficiency. It is a competitive advantage. It's less of one now than it was a number of years ago, because I think our competitors have, have been catching up. Um, and I think it's, it's clearly a benefit for the world. Apple, I mean, I do love them in a lot of ways. And we clearly compete with them, so does Microsoft. Um, they actually, I'd say, have been a leader in efficiency. You know, um, their products, compared to most of the rest of the computer industry, are far more energy efficient. Um, they've done a much better job of, of managing power on their systems to reduce the energy consumption, a lot of it driven by mobile devices. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they've been a leader. I don't know exactly where they stand in terms of trying to drive efficiency in their supply chain. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, certainly, I, I know they've talked about that. That's something that we talk to our suppliers about. There's no question that it helps others, but I think if, if you are out in front and leading, you'll take more advantage of it than your competitors, and I think that's our feeling is we're, we're going to lead, Yes, others will get advantage from that too, but uh, far better to do that and be out in front than to be behind.
1: Let's have our audience question, please. Coming up. Yep.
0: Hi. Uh, two quick questions. One: uh, Where does uh, Microsoft and Google think that they can make the big, biggest difference, direct difference, in bringing the emissions of that 98% down?
1: That's the first. And then the second is. Uh, one question. Sorry. Up. Uh, okay. Do you prefer oh, oh, the second we, we, question? Do you want to ask the second question instead? <laughs> We've got a big line. So, that, so okay. where do you think you can make the big impact? Uh, I think it's,
0: like I sort of said at the beginning, of the concentric circle. The biggest opportunity is leveraging software and technology to reinvent the way we use all resources, not just energy. Full stop. Massive opportunity.
1: And do you see this as you've been talking about cost reduction? Do you also see revenue growth?
0: Oh, absolutely. So, think about buildings. Buildings today don't have a lot of information technology embedded in them. There's 40% of the world's energy use is in the buildings, 40, 37% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. Right? You could go through each industry, transportation, deforestation. All of those things are largely information challenges. Not solely, but you cannot solve these problems without massive infrastructure of information.
1: So it's a real growth opportunity. Next question, please.
3: Thank you. Uh, can you see, foresee any financial models for... Uh, regional, national, international uh, government or nonprofit entities uh, starting to uh, starting to run uh, energy programs in addition or instead of private companies.
0: Well, if you look at China, it's owned by the state, I believe, right? So some of it, some much of it. Of it. Yeah, much of it. In India, it's about fifty percent. So, you know, the question is very different depending on where you are in the world. In a lot of cases, it's run by states, and for what it's worth, those aren't always the most efficient.
2: Right. right. So, and, and the U.S. has a wide range of yep. regulatory structures. And I think that you know, from the completely regulated to unregulated, there's actually, you can find efficient and inefficient examples across that whole spectrum. Um, so I think you know, there clearly is change needed. There's going to be a lot of experimentation to figure out how to drive it.
1: And even a lot of people don't know, pa- Palo Alto and Santa Clara get their electricity from municipally owned and generated.
2: Yeah, I mean, there are thousands, I believe, of municipal yep. utilities around this country.
1: Next question. Hello. Hi there. What are your biggest institutional barriers to driving energy efficiency internally in your data centers and your systems? A lot of this seems like no-brainers, but what's what's getting in the way of taking it to the next level?
2: Most energy efficiency work, I would say, actually is a no-brainer. But people don't seem to have brains, so... um, (laughs) Even at Google? Not really. Sorry, I couldn't resist that. I apologize. (laughs) But but, so people talk about energy efficiency being the low-hanging fruit, not just in data centers. Yet they don't do the work. They don't do the energy efficiency upgrades. Many energy efficiency opportunities are left sitting there. In many organizations, it's because uh, the the people who, for example, and you talk about data centers, the people who buy the computers, the people who design and build the building, and the people who actually pay to run the, the computers, to pay for the electricity, might all be different people. And they each have their own budget. And they're each trying to optimize their own budget. So the guy who's buying the computer, or gal, um, uh, wants to get the most computer for the buck possible, which means spend as little money on, say, a more efficient power supply or more efficient components as possible. So you buy the cheapest thing you can. It might cost more to run. That's somebody else's problem. And that kind of issue you find not just in data centers, but throughout businesses, throughout you know, you look at somebody who's renting an apartment, might have an inefficient refrigerator. Well, who bought the refrigerator? The landlord. It was cheaper, less efficient. Um, so there are institutional barriers. in companies, if you focus people on total cost of ownership, lifetime cost, capital plus operating cost, and get everybody to think in those terms, not just in terms of their own budget, you can make a lot of progress. And that's, you know, we, we started as a company 13 years ago almost, at the beginning, we didn't have budgets. Everyone was just thinking in terms of total cost. Um, we've maintained that culture throughout, even as, as we become a much bigger company with budgets and so on. So if someone has a capital budget and they realize they could spend more money and need a bigger budget but save the company money, You know, they'll ask for permission to increase their budget or they'll say, I want to do this, here's why. Permission will be granted. Many companies, you wouldn't even ask.
0: So I just, just want to, yeah, because I think you asked, Christina, you asked a really interesting question. I think it's a, more and more when I go and I talk both with customers and internally, the challenge is as much, if not more, governance and behavior than it is technology. So an example, when we first started in the data center business, one of my early jobs at Microsoft was running a bunch of the MSN properties. Right? We paid for servers and space allocation. You know, Fast forward over the last four or five years, we changed the model and we said, Actually, we're going to bill you based on energy as the base. And there's additives on top of it, but it's all based on your energy-based consumption. It had massive impact and behavior change because all of a sudden, for the people who weren't already there, and there were many who were, <coughs> but the people who weren't there, they totally flipped their paradigm. And so what ended up coming out of that is really radical advances around how we actually designed and run data centers all the way to the fact that some maintenance guy who was now thinking about costs in a different way said, hey, you know, we have all these white roofs. I think we should go clean them and see what happens. And literally, because we watch all this stuff real time, he went out there and power washed off our roofs, because they're white roofs, and the energy consumption in that building immediately dropped by 3%, holding everything else constant. Right? Because his incentive was aligned. I don't think that the guy looking at facilities would have historically gone and said, hey, I think I'm going to go clean the roof. <laughs>
1: Tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. uh, Rob Bernard is chief environmental strategist at Microsoft. We also have Bill Weil, Green Energy All right, at Google. Next question, please.
4: Hi, I'm Lisa Weinzimmer, reporter with McGraw-Hill, with a follow-up question on energy efficiency. Here in California, and actually elsewhere, uh, policymakers, uh, the CPUC, and others have struggled with actually measuring uh, just how well efficiency is working, and I'm guessing that you know how important uh, efficiency is here in California. It's the top energy priority. Yet policymakers and utilities have been grappling with this, especially given that utilities are given uh, financial rewards now for reaching targets. Has Google, have both of you or your companies, either or both, considered working on the actual measurement of efficiency. Uh,
2: How do you measure megawatts? Yeah. I think the fundamental difficulty...
4: Excuse me, it's a long question, I know.
2: That's all right. I think the fundamental difficulty is that when you want to ask, how much benefit did we get from efficiency, you have to ask, what would have happened if we hadn't done that?
0: Business as usual. And
2: that's an unknown, and it's unknowable. So you can build models that that say, if we continue along the sort of business-as-usual path, if we don't do extra work to make refrigerators more efficient or computers more efficient, how much energy will we consume? And then you can look at, well, we had these energy efficiency programs. Refrigerators are now more efficient on average and so on. How much energy are we consuming? You compare that, you can say, we're using less. Or maybe you're using more because population grew more than you expected or economic growth caused people to buy more large screen TVs or whatever. It's very hard to control for all of the factors and really understand uh, you know, what the impact of this change, this efficiency program is. So I, I, so I guess the short answer is we're not trying to measure that directly. I'm not sure how one would actually measure it. You can model the business as usual case and then try to compare. Uh, but it is very hard. Robert I? So, um in most cases, and
0: almost all cases, I fully fully agree. And then in some cases, it is obvious. So one of the things we've started to look at in our industry is, where do applications basically break the entire energy paradigm that our industry is trying to build? So one of the examples in, in you know, the great company Adobe, You know, if you were to go watch a video session a year or two ago, and you walked away from your computer, whether you're running it on our operating systems or Apple's or somebody else's, in general, the machines, modern machines are designed to go to sleep, which means it goes from whatever energy it consumes down to a two-watt stage, two to three watts, depending on the machine, after about 20 minutes. We go, well, that's pretty good. But then there's this problem, which is any single application, in this case, it happened to be you know, watching videos, so whether you're watching it on YouTube or anything that uses Adobe, you walk away from your machine, you could walk away from your machine for a week, and it would not go to sleep, because it kept saying the operating system, I need your resources, I need your resources, I need your resources. Right? So there was a case, and we went to Adobe along with many others, and they were great about it. They said, hey, we've got to fix this problem, and they did, and they released a patch. There were, literally when they launched that patch, millions of machines that were using over 100 watts of energy, which were now down to a 2-watt stage. So in that limited example, you can see a direct correlation, but most of the time, like Bill says, you've you got to do these simulation models that says, business as usual would have done this, when did it do like this? I mean, one of the things we haven't talked about yet is kind of how do these applications actually in a way, violate the principles of good energy policy in our industry. That's a big issue.
1: We'll get to the next question. I think there was sort of an embedded uh, plea almost in that question because the state needs your help to figure out things. Technology companies, the state could use your help. I think that was one of the subtext there. Uh, Next question, please. Thank you. Could you summarize your top three public policy priorities
0: in the energy and environmental area?
2: So we've done a lot of advocacy work um, around energy over the last few years. I'd I say the top priorities are access to energy information so that pe- people can get at and, and access and understand the, the ways in which they're using energy. Um, uh, driving innovation, so policies that will drive innovation in the um, energy space, so driving costs of energy, clean energy, down. Okay. it's Actually, those are the, the two main ones.
0: And for us, I'd say, um, I spent a lot of time actually educating policymakers on what is possible with the use of technology, right? So for example, if they're more educated than you would hope, that they would make more well-rounded decisions. So I just came back from a trip where we spoke with a number of members of European Parliament. So 70% of the world's water is used for agriculture, and about 50% of that is wasted. One of the biggest subsidies in all of Europe is for water, water use for farmers. Yet by applying information technology, and again, it doesn't have to be ours, it could be anybody's, we've shown, and a bunch of kids in Australia did this project, where you could reduce the amount of water used in a farm by about 50%. The policymakers were shocked when we walked through sort of the scenario of how can you apply cloud-based computing and cellular phones, mobile phones, to this problem? So our number one priority is educating them on what's possible in the hopes, because they're the policy experts, we're not. And then the second thing, kind of like... Bill was saying is we think about free-flow use of information needs to be more readily available. Next question, please. Thanks
1: very much. Uh, Gary Cook with Greenpeace International. Uh, thanks. Very great talk, gentlemen. A question, we've talked a lot about access to information. We just both touched on it. Um, we're, you know, a cloud user. We're the, the sector is moving much more to cloud-based computing, and we want to be we're also very cognizant of how much energy, energy we're using, what are a source of energy. Uh, we've asked both of you for more, greater transparency on your source of energy, how much energy you're using to provide these services. And you often blame each other for not wanting to disclose this. Um, so I'm asking, what is the, how do we get back to the barriers get, in terms of removing barriers to information access? Um, can we get a commitment, or what's the, how do we get to a uh, place where I can go online and find out how much my Gmail account is using or how much coal it's using? Because right now, we don't have this information. You're, you're holding the data, and you're not sharing it.
0: So yeah, and I'd be curious on Bill and your response. So there's there's a couple of dimensions. Let me try to address them at a, at a whole level. So we, we, we produce, we release in the Carbon Disclosure Project. We'll probably, we're in the process of finalizing it now, but we're probably about a million and a half tons of carbon a year as a company right now. We've gone up from about a million to about a million and a half over the last few years. And in many areas like travel, we've reduced it in our offices. And you know, Gary, we've talked about this, and I'm happy to walk through. We could actually reverse engineer how much is applicable to our data centers versus our offices versus our air travel. Now, when that's sort of a macro level. So you could say, hey, Microsoft uses X hundreds of thousands of tons to power its data centers. <coughs> now, there's a second level issue, which is oftentimes we're reporting a number which is higher than the reality because of this, without getting into too much detail, this thing called grid average. You could go, if you were a company like Microsoft or Google, and buy green power, but then the reporting infrastructure says, actually, and this is the case in Ireland, you've got to report at a grid average number. So the number of report is actually higher than the number we're paying to buy. Right? So there's a different problem now, which is, well, which number do you want us to... T- we talk about both, but which number actually impacts it? And then the next thing, whether it's Hotmail or Gmail, is these servers move all over the place. So I actually don't know where Gary Cook's at, you know, at Gmail or Hotmail email is likely residing and moving. I can tell you in aggregate kind of what percentage of our energy use is for a certain given service, And you might start to get some inference. But really, that level of granularity isn't actually possible today. I think the macro question is, are we driving more efficiency so that each individual email user is significantly reducing the amount of energy that's required to service them? And are we generally trying to do the right things to change the energy mix? And then the complicating factor is the reporting requirements actually don't support the kinds of transparency that I think we actually agree with you should be out there.
1: But would you agree that it'd be pretty cool for a person on Gmail or Hotmail to be able to see their energy uses, that like you can see your energy uses on a Prius or something like that? Would you agree with the goal? The, the well, the vision? question is,
2: what would they do with that?
1: It's Like, oh, that's interesting. Okay. But would
2: it drive change in behavior? Would they say, oh, well, I'm not going to send another email. It's going to you know, generate <laughs> another 0.2 grams of carbon. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know that that's I mean, I think it's interesting from the point of view of trying to put pressure on us, which I think, honestly, Gary, is part of the reason you, you want us to do this. But I also think it misses the real issue to some extent. We're big, visible companies. Um, we run big operations. Um, broadly in the economy, ours are much more carbon and energy efficient than most businesses from the point of view of revenue. You know, we're, we're IT companies. We're not you know, aluminum smelters, for example. Um, The real problem is that as an economy, as a society, we depend on energy and on things that, in the end, the production of those things and moving things around and the energy we use produces greenhouse gases in enormous quantities. And what we need to do is change that. Um, So I think the, the, the goal that I think that we share with Greenpeace and with Microsoft is driving that change on the grid. And everything we're doing from an energy point of view in the end, is aimed at trying to drive that, to get more renewable energy on the grid, to make renewable energy cheaper so everyone can afford it, as opposed to it being a, a niche market. I think that, in the end, is the critical thing that we really need to stay focused on, you know, not trying to, to uh, you know, perhaps solve a very small, par- small part of the problem, namely the emissions from the IT sector, um, when the real problem is the
1: economy as a whole. It's easy to focus on these data centers, but that doesn't actually address the, the larger problem. Bill Weil's Green Energies are at Google. We're discussing energy efficiency at Climate One. Next audience question, please. Thanks. This is kind of a follow-up to the previous question, um, but I'm interested in hearing about your perspectives on the environmental benefits of um, a small business moving a lot of their applications or processes from a server room in their own office to the cloud. And... um, what kind of benefits we can expect moving from that small business into a large data center.
0: So, yeah, we actually just – we have the same exact question. It's a great question. We've been grappling with this for about two years, and we finally hired Accenture and WSP and gave them a bunch of access to a bunch of our customers' data with the customer's permission on energy use, not their their information. And what they found is that for an enterprise – so let's say you ran – everybody in here runs different-sized companies. Some of you run big enterprise companies with, like, 100,000 people, and some of you run your own little business with maybe 10 people. So for the company that has 50 to 100,000 people, moving things like Exchange or in Outlook and SharePoint and other stuff over to our services ended up in a net reduction in energy of about 30%. 30% uh, reduction in energy and therefore holding carbon, if you held carbon constant, it's a 30% reduction in carbon. For small businesses, the number was actually really dramatic. It was 90% energy savings. And there were four primary drivers, but when you think about it, it's mass efficiency. It's the difference between mass transportation and single occupancy vehicle, except there isn't a trade-off of on-demand, right? So you get rid of that challenge of public transportation. But that's the analogy which says, if you moved it, you know, and I'm sure if you guys looked at your numbers, and maybe you have, and and no, Salesforce just put out some numbers which weren't much different, the numbers are really staggering because it's really inefficient to do. So if you look at a parallel which is, you know, 100 years ago, most manufacturers and small companies manage their own power plants on-site. We didn't have alternating current yet. We had DC. There's all these issues and why, right? But now think about the world where you, today, how many people run their own power plants at their own? Very few. Some large organizations still do, but this whole transition to efficiency at scale is what I think we're starting to see early stages of, and hopefully those numbers will get better. Um, we actually think that those numbers will get better.
2: Yeah, I actually think one, one of the big areas where there's a lot of room still for improvement, I think you're absolutely right, and we've seen very similar numbers Uh, Moving to um, a common infrastructure where the marginal cost per additional user is very small Mm -hmm. gives huge efficiencies. And we operate at a scale, as does Microsoft, where we can operate our uh, entire facility, all of our facilities, much more efficiently than certainly a small business or even than most large businesses. Um, But the really big opportunity that, that isn't addressed by that is what's happening on the client side. Because in most businesses, actually, the client devices, the PCs, the laptops, and so on, use more energy than the servers. The servers are just in a, in a server room or in a data center where you can see them all in one place. The rest is much more diffuse. So the opportunity there is to move to a really a true cloud-based infrastructure where those client devices are lightweight, primarily web-based systems, much lower power, maybe portable um, tablets, laptops, or even if they're desktops, it's a you know, much lighter weight system that doesn't put all that computing power on your desk where it's not used most of the time. I think that's an opportunity and where we'll see a huge shift over the, the next few years.
1: Next question,
3: please. Hello, I'm uh, Arthur Young with Communication Management in UC Berkeley. Recognizing that you represent two of the most powerful corporations on the planet, that you're not front men for EDF, series, the Sierra Club, or uh, uh, NRDC. What is it about American industry that, with the minor exception of some green building, doesn't quite get it when we look at issues of efficiency and climate change? I realize I'm asking more a personal observation than a corporate observation but it's frustrating to see the barriers to entry when only 56 of the Fortune 500 companies issue environmental annual reports. Thank you.
0: So I'm actually, I hope you don't mind, Bill, I'm going to reuse your answer that Christina asked before about governance <laughs> internally, which is the incentives aren't aligned. Yeah. That's it. It's a landlord-tenant problem. If you don't have to pay, for it, it's a Tragedy of the commons, it's all the... I mean, this stuff has been looked at quite a few angles, and I think Bill answered it great before. It's like, look, if, if the accountability is not where the use is, then you get moral hazard, people just using yep. too much of whatever it is, water, energy, anything.
2: Absolutely. And I, and I think, in the end, that's the reason why most companies don't do this. Um, I think that, that at some level you could also say it's a failure of leadership, that one of the jobs of leaders is to do things that might not otherwise be in their own narrow self-interest. And I think many companies aren't willing to do that. Um, I think one of the things that, that drew me to Google five years ago was that, in fact, all the top leadership felt that this was the, the, the climate issue, the climate problem, was an issue that was our problem, not just the world's problem, and that we had a responsibility, just as everyone else did, to try to do something about it. And to be as responsible in our own operations as possible not to eke out every last penny of profit, potentially at the expense of, of the environment. So I think that, that's where leadership really starts to play.
1: Are there leaders, quickly we have to wrap up, are there leaders that you respect outside of your own companies who have gone beyond those aligned uh, incentives to really take, take some personal uh, company or, or uh, reputation risk?
2: Oh, if, if you look at, at Interface Corporation, makes carpet uh, Ray Anderson. I believe, yeah, he's, right? uh, Patagonia would be uh, one Patagonia, absolutely. Walmart, um, Apple. I think actually has made a huge shift in the last few years. Um, you know, all those. You, you can look at many of the things they've done and say, well, in many cases, actually was in their self-interest. They made things more efficient. Walmart's eliminated packaging. They're saving money. In many cases, that's true. But many of the things that one can do to actually be more sustainable do, in the end, save you money or help you open up new businesses to make more money. So I think that, that the, the key is to actually start thinking about them. Even when, when you first look at them, it looks like, wow, that's going to cost me money. I shouldn't do that. If you start looking at them harder, you can figure out ways to do this and do some good, but also make money.
1: We have to uh, end it there. Our thanks to Bill Weil, Green Energy Czar at Google, and Rob Bernard, Chief Environmental Strategist at Microsoft. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming to Climate One today.